so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. (laughs) But I'm almost positive you did that last week. You told us how you saved that for 2021. He did, but he said he was going to talk about it on the podcast this week. Yeah, we didn't this do any lunchroom. You didn't week. actually it, keep right. it in the podcast. No, we had it was a whole conversation, scenes. though. Offline, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, we're, we're good. We're good. We're good. Okay, great. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the studio today is my co-host, Brent Leatherwood. Hey, y'all. I am back from the the dark side. And sitting in for Lindsay today (laughs) is our ever-faithful colleague, Megan Smith, the podcast ninja. Hello, everyone. It's nice to be here and heard. Megan was never on the dark side. Megan was never on the dark side. That's right. Yeah. So guys, Lindsay had a baby. And everything is great. Baby boy's healthy. <laughs> Lindsay's doing great. She's on vacation. She may be in the dark side now. <laughs> I, t- I talked to her yesterday and asked her if she was um if she was resting at all or getting any sleep or whatever. And she said, oh, well, you know, I have my husband and my mom's here. They're helping me tremendously. Like, you know, there's a, she seems like she's doing great. And Lindsay loves to watch movies. So I think that this is going to be a few weeks of maybe a little bit of sleeplessness, some baby troubles, but... Lots of movie watching, so yeah, good for her. Yeah, I do. I I do not envy her with these uh, long nights that await uh, them. We'll go ahead and get into it. Uh, obviously, coming off of last week, there was last week was probably one of the heaviest podcasts that we have recorded. And uh, like a lot of you, we've heard from a ton of people that have listened to it, and just we're all processing uh, some heavy emotions together. And then this was another just calamitous and major week uh, in American life. And so there's tons of stuff to talk about. Also, later in the show, look forward to it. We are going to have a conversation with Haley Bird, who is a reporter uh, now at thedispatch.com. She was prior to that at CNN. And prior to that, she was with the Weekly Standard, which is just, you know, if you know anything about uh, conservative journalism, like that's that's quite a track record. So we're excited to talk to her because she is their Capitol Hill reporter. And so going to have a conversation about both what happened last week and get into some of the impeachment stuff from this week. But so that we can get into it, Megan, you're going to take it away, do Lindsay's job and tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. All right. So the first article we're going to highlight is by Carl Lafferton. Carl is the EVP of Publishing and Editorial Director at The Good Book Company, and he is a best-selling author of kids' books. Carl wrote an article for us this week called Four Things to Teach Kids About Trusting God Through Uncertainty. He wrote, while the world tells children things that will be okay, we don't, but we can tell them that in Christ, all is ultimately and eternally okay. The empty tomb is the rock-solid certainty that no tidal wave can sweep away. Christ is risen, just as he promised, and so every other one of his promises will come true too. Christ is risen is the three-word answer to the uncertainties of this life. He has triumphed over death, and so our kids can look at the fallenness of the world and the finitude of humanity in the face and smile. It was really good and encouraging even for me, and I love that he was just really honest with when everything kind of fell apart at the beginning of 2020 and his kids looked to him for answers about, dad, when are we going back to school? Or dad, when do we get to play with our friends again? He just looked at them and said, I don't know. Um, And as a result, got to point to the Lord and how we can look to him for certainty, um, even when mom and dad don't have the answers. I'm really thankful for this. And you know, Carl Afferton, he is the, as you said, the EVP at uh, the Good Book Company. They are a partner 
uh, of us at the RLC. And I, I'm just – I'm thankful that they continually publish resources uh, that are timely and helpful for Christians. But, I mean, I love the sentence that he put in there, Christ is risen is the three-word answer to the uncertainties of this life. And that reminds me of something that Dr. Moore shared with us, gosh, it's probably a couple years ago now, is that uh, the, the work that we do as Christians should continually point people to the promise of Easter. If you just keep that in the back of your mind, regardless of what season of life you're going through, man, that's that's just good stuff. And And Carl picks that up in this piece. Megan, when you were setting that up, uh, and as you were kind of reading through that, or just talking about like... Uh, they're his kids looking to them. It reminded me actually of that Jim Gaffigan joke about, you know, he has four kids and they, somebody says, what's it like to have four kids? And he says, well, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. <laughs> That's for any parent. I don't care if you have like one kid or, or 10 kids uh, going through 2020 and being in this place where, you know, when your children are looking at you going, hey, explain the world to me, help me make sense of this, tell me it's going to be okay. And you're like, I don't know. I've never lived through a pandemic before. I don't know how to deal with all of this stuff. That's why we publish these articles to just help focus people on the right things. And so Brent talking about everything in light of Easter is exactly right. And so Carl here, like walking us through just these basic truths about Jesus and the gospel that we can rehearse with our kids in the midst of these hard times. That's, that's incredibly helpful. All right. The next article we have this week is by our very own Jason Thacker and Josh Wester. They teamed up to write an article called Understanding Twitter Suspensions and the Need for Consistent Policies. So this article comes out of last Friday evening, Twitter officially suspended um, President Trump's Twitter um, from its platform and um, saying that it's violating its stated community policies related to inciting violence and spreading false information. Um, so, Josh, tell us a little bit more about what you and Jason dug into in this article. Yeah, so this was kind of a surprise uh, that came to us on on Friday after we watched everything that happened in the Capitol on Wednesday, and then what you know, and all the things we talked about in the podcast last week. Twitter made this uh, decision to suspend the president's account, and one of the reasons that they did that is, or their, their stated reason was that uh, that account had repeatedly violated their community standards. And the reason that this was such an important thing is because President Trump had used his Twitter account repeatedly over and over again. In fact, like bef- in the weeks before he was suspended, you could like scroll through his thread and you would see Twitter had to put all of these labels on his tweets about the election because they were all about this, you know, contrived false narrative about election fraud and and a rigged election. And so uh, after the events happened on Wednesday, uh, the president was was warned by Twitter, like directly, like direct communication that there was no option for him to continue to post uh, these kinds of things that that are inflammatory or that are in violation of their community standards that could potentially put people's lives in danger. And they they deemed after a couple more tweets came out from the president's account that this was just a this was just a bridge too far. And it wasn't about trying to enforce some kind of uh, restriction of content based on ideas. It was about uh, content that they felt put people's lives in danger. And so Jason and I walked through that and talked about Twitter's decision to suspend the president's account, but also the fact that that Twitter has, you know, there's some hypocrisy there because they have allowed uh, historically some really egregious uh, accounts to be maintained from from the Ayatollah in Iran, from uh, officials from the Chinese Communist Party and posting things that we know is trafficking in false information, including uh, the, you know, false information about the persecution and what what may be genocide of, of Uyghur Muslims. And so we are, you know, we wrote about that just to try to help people understand what happened with Twitter's decision and what that's likely to mean going forward. And then, Megan, I'm just going to take it from here and say one other um, major article that we wanted to highlight from the from the week actually came out on Monday, and it was from Dr. Moore, and it was called uh, The Roman Road from Insurrection. I'll be honest with you, it was a major piece. It was uh, one of those things that Dr. Moore took basically the Romans road. Uh, if you're familiar with that at all as an evangelical or Southern Baptist, where we use the Romans road uh, to walk just in the book of Romans through the gospel story and to, to point people toward Jesus. Well, he, he used that framework to help us understand uh, what he called like the roots of the crisis that we watched play out at the Capitol last Wednesday and how we got to where we are and what it looks like to move forward. It was an incredibly uh, powerful piece, but it opened like this. He said, this week we watched an insurrection of domestic terrorists incited and fomented by the president of the United States. 
We saw the attack on our capital, the desecrating of the seat of our democracy, the harming of innocent human lives, and the murdering of a Capitol police officer. We saw a mob threatening to lynch the vice president of the United States and members of Congress, all in an attempt to stop a constitutional process and to overturn an election by the American people. It has been shared thousands and thousands of times. It has been viewed uh, on Dr. Moore's website more than a quarter million times. It is uh, even still uh, on Thursday, and it came out on Monday. Uh, We're still hearing almost every hour regular feedback from this piece, and we would just really encourage you to read it. We can't really do it justice on the podcast, even talking through it, but it was it was truly powerful. You're right, Josh. This was a great piece by Dr. Moore. I really enjoyed reading it, and it seems to have really taken off um, online, and it's exciting to see everyone just focusing in on this from Dr. Moore. Well, and I think uh, part of the the power of it was that it was just, it was soaked in um, a lot of biblical truth and uh, and clarity, uh, helpful clarity. I, I can't tell you how many of my former colleagues uh, that I worked with uh, in the political world, honestly, on, on both the Republican and the, the Democratic side, but uh, especially on the Republican side, former folks that I worked with at the Republican National Committee, with uh, various state Republican parties, and, and honestly, members of current staff members on the Hill right now. Uh, th- this struck a chord, and um, there's just a lot of folks that are are currently active in uh, the public square that this really struck a chord with. And uh, I'm just grateful that Dr. Moore decided to, to put these thoughts down and, and share them with the world. And uh, I hope if you haven't had a chance uh, to read it in this really important moment in our ailing public square, um, I, I really would ask you to. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Brent, I've read basically everything that Dr. Moore has written, this might be, uh, and I'm not alone in thinking this, this might be the most important or among the most important pieces that he has published. And so it is going to be helpful for Christians uh, to contend with that. And he's he's certainly not the only person offering good perspectives out there right now, but this, this particular piece just kind of met the moment. And so we would really encourage you uh, to take a look at that. But on this theme, it's a good place for us to segue and move over into the culture section for the week. So Brent, why don't you tell us, I imagine a lot of it is going to be related to what we were just talking about. So why don't you tell us uh, what's going on? That's right. So uh, we conclude this week uh, in a similar place to where we were 13 months ago. So if uh, if you're feeling a bit of deja vu, <laughs> you're not alone. President Donald Trump has been impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives. Baptist Press reports that representatives voted 232 to 197 Wednesday afternoon, January 13th, to impeach Donald Trump for inciting insurrection in the aftermath of of a deadly takeover by a mob uh, on Wednesday, January 6th. Ten Republicans joined the Democrats in approving the article, the single article of impeachment, which said Trump, quote, engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors by inciting the violence. The attack resulted in injuries to more than 50 policemen and resulted in five deaths, including uh, a Capitol Hill police officer. Because of this action, President Trump now becomes the only president in American history to be impeached twice. Procedurally, it means that the next step belongs to the United States Senate. Uh, Axios is reporting that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky told Republican colleagues this week he has, quote, not made a final decision on how I will vote, and I intend to listen to the legal arguments when they are presented to the Senate. But he will not move to reconvene the Senate before they are scheduled to return on January 19th, meaning a trial will take place during the early days of the Biden administration. Sources for Axios say that McConnell sees this fight as his legacy, defending the Senate and the institution against the verbal attack of the president and the literal attack of his followers in the mob. As of Tuesday night, there are several outlets reporting that Senator McConnell was leaning towards convicting President Trump. So uh, that is really just a summary of of where we find ourselves uh, as we record this podcast. Uh, It has been 
and long and uh, tumultuous and and news heavy uh, last week and a half uh, since the uh, the insurrection at the at the Capitol. And I mean, it just it, honestly, it just seems like every hour that passes, we are living in a momentous historical moment. It does feel very interesting, Brent. Um, I remember the very last day that we were in the office, to all of us together, um, we were like sitting around watching the impeachment trial of Trump. And now here we are again. Um, so it's very deja vu. Um, so I don't completely understand all that goes into impeachment. Um, but as far as like it lining up really with the inauguration, um, what comes next? Like, can it extend beyond that? And how would that play out? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the reason that the Senate is not in session right now is they have uh, finished the current business before them and they are in recess under what's known as a unanimous consent agreement. And what that means is that all 100 senators agreed that they should be in recess right now until they return on, on January 19th. There is some speculation that uh, they could be called into uh, back into session if both the majority leader and the minority leader uh, agree that this is an emergency and that could uh, potentially end the unanimous consent agreement. Minority leader Chuck Schumer uh, made that request to the majority leader and it was declined. So it looks like the earliest that the article of impeachment could be procedurally turned over to the Senate uh, would be January 19th. And then there actually is quite a bit of uh, logistics uh, that would go into uh, turning the Senate into a trial once again, where the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court comes over to to preside. So uh, there's, there's some scheduling uh, that has to be done uh, and some other uh, work to prepare for that. And then, so this is what's crazy. It may begin with Republicans holding the majority and then end with Democrats holding the majority. Uh, so our, our audience may remember uh, that uh, there were two surprise victories for Democrats recently in uh, runoff elections in Georgia. That means that uh, once they uh, have their results certified, which that will occur within the probably the next 24 hours, uh, they potentially will be sworn in somewhere between January 20th and January 22nd, uh, which means it'll be a 50-50 split and the tie goes to uh, whomever will be vice president, which the Democrats will hold that office. So there is just a lot of variables uh, at play here. There is precedent uh, for impeaching and convicting uh, an individual after they leave office. Uh, so it, it's not without precedent that the transition occurs. President-elect Biden is inaugurated and uh, the Senate moves uh, to the trial and to possible conviction even after President Trump leaves office. So th there's, a, there's a lot of steps to take here for this to play out, and uh, we certainly can, can talk about it. But uh, again, it just shows what a what a historic moment we're living in. It is a historic moment, and it is a lot to uh, it's a lot to take in. It's kind of difficult uh, to believe that we're in a place where you're looking at uh, really watching history be made. The fact that we've never had a president uh, be impeached twice. We've only had four impeachments in the history of the presidency, and so this is you know this is remarkable. And it's one of those things that uh, I think a lot of people are, especially probably a lot of our our listeners are grappling with because, look, the thing that I would say is just that it is not obvious or clear uh, what necessarily like the best path forward is in all of this. It's not necessarily clear what uh, is the best. I mean, some of the arguments that you're hearing uh, made back and forth about impeachment and whether or not they should have pursued the process were just about like what is best for the country. And, you know, th that's actually a pretty complex question. What happened uh, last week was objectively horrible, and the president of the United States bears not just some or a little bit, but tremendous responsibility uh, for what happened, for spending two months telling his followers that the president that they voted for uh, was robbed of an election because it was rigged or stolen, and then encouraged them to fly or travel to Washington, D.C. to, quote, stop the steal. He bears tremendous responsibility for what happened. The best way to move forward 
there's a lot of opinions on that. And so this is, I guess, if, if anything, we can say it's fortunate that it's not really up to us. It's not really up to any of us to decide what should happen. We're kind of just watching this process play out. So that's the the political fallout on Capitol Hill, but the fallout continued in other ways as well. CNN reports on the resignations of multiple members of the administration, including Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao and former White House Chief of Staff and current envoy to Northern Ireland, Mick Mulvaney, as well as other members of the White House staff, including First Lady Melania Trump's Chief of Staff. All of those folks, as well as some national security personnel, uh, have all resigned in the wake of the Capitol Hill takeover. On the Hill, resignations from the House and Senate sergeants at arms, as well as the Capitol Hill uh, chief of police, also followed as a result of the takeover. According to a report in NPR, Chief Sund, who is the, the former uh, Capitol Hill police chief, says that security officials at the House and Senate rebuffed his early requests to call in the National Guard ahead of the demonstration in support of President Trump that turned into a deadly attack on Congress. So obviously this has led to a lot of finger pointing and blame, uh, but it comes at a time when many of us are wondering about the security in our nation's capital as it's just days before the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. That is due to take place at noon on January 20th. As a precaution, it was announced on Thursday that the National Mall would be closed to visitors for the inauguration. And in honestly, in, in scenes that seem more appropriate for some dystopian movie, 20,000 members of the National Guard are now in place throughout Washington, D.C. In fact, pictures emerged of troops sleeping throughout the Capitol building. The first time that has occurred since the Civil War. I mean, I was truly struck, y'all, uh, by the, the various reporters snapping photos as they went to the media gallery or to file uh, their reports from the latest uh, that's going on in the Hill. And there's troops stationed in the rotunda uh, and in the Capitol Visitors Complex just sleeping on the marble floors of the Capitol building. I, I've never, I never would have imagined I would see something like that. Yeah, the pictures are really interesting. At first, you kind of have to do a double take, like, why why are they all laying down? And I was like, oh, they're sleeping. Um, but it's really interesting. Um, they're just covered everywhere. I think I can't wrap my head around nobody being at an inauguration, like no crowd. The mall being closed for that is going to have just such a different feel. Um, it's a time to celebrate, um, but it almost feels like it could be very eerie um, feeling with nobody around. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the thing to me that's just so striking is that anybody who has, if you're tempted at all to downplay the severity of what happened or to pretend like this isn't an incredibly precarious time for the state of our nation, look at those pictures. Look at these men and women who, without cots, uh, are just literally laying on the floors to sleep in the United States Capitol building just to ensure the peaceful transfer of power. It is truly... I mean, remarkable is not even the word. It's disturbing to know that this is where we are. Well, and to to move on and, and maybe to pick up on a something that you said, Megan, uh, maybe it's, it's a little bit of providence uh, that not that many people will be gathering in Washington, D.C. for the inauguration because while all this uh, is happening, the coronavirus continues to rage across the country and the globe. As a result, the CDC announced this week that beginning on January 26th, all international travelers flying into the U.S. must show proof of a negative COVID-19 test, according to the, the CDC site. It is on airlines to confirm the negative results for all passengers or documentation of recovery before they board. I, I mean... It just seems like, again, our, our system is is being strained uh, in ways that uh, before 2020 came along, I don't think any of us really could have imagined. We've seen some states do this, like before going to Hawaii, you've had to have a negative COVID test and other countries have put this in place. But this was a shock to me this week when I read this too, just like what we're asking of airlines even to monitor. Um, and 
I just think it's very interesting. Um, but whatever helps the spread to not just escalate the spread um, is what we have to do then. Yeah. And so that, that's visitors coming in from outside of the country. But domestically, it's, it's honestly a terrible picture. So Axios reports the U.S. is now averaging nearly 250,000 new coronavirus cases per day a crisis of staggering proportions, even though many Americans have tuned it out. And, and honestly, I got to tell you, this kind of fell into the background for me uh, as the events played out in Washington over the last week. But I mean, these are sobering numbers. They go on to report the big picture here is that it's not even sufficient to say the pandemic is still going on as if it's a fire that hasn't finished burning out. The pandemic is in fact raging. Its deadliest and most dangerous days are happening right now, and it keeps getting worse. So as I said, the U.S. is averaging 200, uh, just under 250,000 new cases per day over the past week. That is a 13% jump from the week before. Hospital capacity is dangerously strained in several parts of the country. Coronavirus patients now occupy 40% of all hospital beds in places like Arizona, 33% in California and Nevada, and 26% of all the beds in Georgia and Texas. December was the deadliest month of the entire pandemic, and January is on track to beat it. The virus has already killed roughly 35,000 Americans in just the first 13 days of January. I mean, y'all, I, I don't know what to say, uh, but COVID is real and we've we've got to start treating it more serious. Yeah, it's crazy. With everything going on, uh, the COVID storyline kind of drops into the background. But I saw that, you know, like 4,500 people or almost 4,500 people died yesterday or this like one day this week just because of the virus. And so as we are, you know, on this campaign to to battle back against dismissing everything as fake news, that is that is tremendously alarming especially, you know, for us to be an organization that is all about promoting human dignity, to realize that every day this many people are dying. And I understand a lot of them have significant comorbidities and they have, you know, underlying conditions and things going on like that. But the truth is like, that is, that is just unbelievable to know that in a single day, almost 5,000 of our fellow Americans are dying from this virus. It's one of those reasons that uh, when you hear people make these appeals, like just wear a mask, you should do everything that you can to keep people safe and to uh, and to treat this like it is something that is really taking people's lives. And it's not just the elderly, although their lives matter, and it's not just people who are already sick. It is uh, it's affecting people all over the place. It's not something. It's not something that we should just wave away or dismiss or forget about. So, uh, you know, to attempt to to find some sort of a silver lining. Uh, perhaps one bright spot in this comes from a report in Forbes magazine this week. Immunity to the novel coronavirus may last up to eight months or even longer, according to a new study that was authored by respected scientists at Leading Labs, which found that individuals who recovered from the coronavirus developed robust levels of certain types of cells to fight off the virus. And, quote, these cells may persist in the body for a very, very long time. Researchers collected blood samples from 185 patients between the ages of 19 to 81 who had tested positive for the virus early in the pandemic, and they discovered that most had enough immune cells to combat the virus and prevent reinfection. They showed remarkably slow rates of decline that were consistent with many years and potentially even decades of protection. I, I pray and I hope that this is absolutely accurate. Uh, because I, I think of family members, colleagues, friends uh, who have gotten this virus, my hope and prayer is that they are in fact uh, immunized this, immunized against this, for at least the foreseeable future. I mean, that would be that would be a blessing if if you did in fact uh, get this virus and and survive it. That would be amazing, Brent. As I read those articles, I was like, it's filled with so much hope that that could be. It. Um, even as we talk about the vaccine and we look for that, like this provides a lot of hope and just like it feels like a weight is lifted as we learn more and more that that could be true. Um, just the fear of those who haven't had it, just fearing when will I get it or whatever. Um, 
but that we are getting closer and closer to solutions and answers of people being immune and vaccines preventing those who've never had it from ever getting it. Um, So it is encouraging, I think, in the midst of all of this tragedy. Okay, so uh, that's probably a good note uh, to end some of the heavier news on. Let's, let's, Let's take a gander through some lighter fare. On Monday of this week, the University of Alabama won the college football national championship. It's their third in the last six years and their sixth national championship over the last 12. I sigh because as a Tennessee fan, this is frankly appalling. And I realize that uh, I risk getting uh, incurring the wrath of our friends, uh, many of our friends uh, down in Alabama. But I, I think of uh, our colleagues at Lifeline Children's Services like Herbie Newell and Dr. Rick Morton, uh, who who bleed crimson. I, I guess we all do, but they, they literally bleed like that particular crimson from Alabama. I believe that uh, the University of Alabama should be deplatformed. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I think it's maybe the only way that the rest of the college football world will ever catch up to the machine that Nick Saban uh, has built down there. Maybe we should just put a cap on how many national titles they can win. Like you've had enough now. I just asked the question, like, is it still fun? You know, is it still fun for you? (laughs) No, it's, it's not fun. And, and if, if there is a such thing as cancel culture, it should come to Tuscaloosa. That's, I, I could run on this platform and actually do really well in Tennessee. No kidding, <laughs> man. Uh, all right, well, I've been told of, it still oh. is fun. I've been told yeah. it is still for fun them. to watch, even though you win over and over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For them, I'm, I'm sure it's it's great. Uh, uh, but it's you know it's a bit redundant for the rest of us. All right. Well, speaking of Alabama, the U.S. Air Force wants to make the Redstone Arsenal located in Huntsville the home of the U.S. Space Command, according to the local affiliate WHNT-TV. The Air Force said Wednesday afternoon that the Secretary of the Air Force had chosen the Redstone Arsenal as the preferred location for the headquarters. The Air Force said a final decision will be made in 2023, pending uh, just some final studies. But hey, this is great news uh, for the folks down in Alabama. It's always fun to be able to talk about Space Force. And uh, so that's, I mean, this one definitely caught my eye. Josh, as the as the member of the team that's the most likely to go to space, uh, I figured this would bring you a certain amount of joy. Hey, look, I'm just excited because I think that, you know, Alabama is way closer to where I am right now than Colorado is. And so the, the opportunity to see it and just, you know, I'm very excited about Space Force, Space Command. It's just, it's nerdy and cool. And yes, as soon as space travel is a thing that people do, I hope to be one of the people that does that thing. <laughs> exactly. All right. And lastly, uh, you know, Josh, I know for you and me, uh, this is going to come as a shocker because we we think the top worshipped song of 2020 was probably How Great Thou Art or uh, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. But in fact, Waymaker was the top worship song of 2020, according to a report in the Biblical Recorder. It was the top song as churches sought comfort in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic based on Faith Life's report of more than 2.2 million uses of its Proclaim software. Um, I can attest to this because the other day I was driving along with uh, two of my kids and our youngest, my son, Rhett, who has made an appearance on the program before, he just out of nowhere uh, started singing Waymaker. (laughs) in the in the silence of our our drive in the truck and uh, I thought that was pretty funny and probably shows that's why Waymaker was the the top uh, worship song I thought this article was really cool um, to just highlight it in such an interesting year when we're doing church from home and this is still the top worship song and I think it said um, in the article, oh yes the Waymaker's top Sunday was March 22nd um, which is interesting timing because that's about the time that we all started staying home for church. Um, And so just what a like providential song that was for us and um, to mark this past year. All right. Well, Megan and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture.
So now we're about to talk to Haley Bird. Haley is a reporter with the Dispatch.com, which is a relatively new outlet we've talked about several times on the podcast. Before she was at the Dispatch, she worked for CNN covering Capitol Hill uh, for that network. And then prior to that, she was at the Weekly Standard. And so she has been covering Capitol Hill for many years. She's a true expert on all the things going on in D.C. And it's especially a helpful time for us to talk to her considering uh, all the events going on in our country. So Haley, thanks so much for joining us today. As we're getting started with podcasts, would you uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do, and just particularly about your experience covering Capitol Hill, especially in light of everything that's gone on in the last week or two? Sure. So um, I've been covering Congress for the past four years. Uh, today, I work at The Dispatch, where I help with editing some of our content, and I write about Congress for our newsletter. Uh, most recently, I was at CNN, where I followed the House of Representatives. Uh, that involved listening to almost every TV interview and press appearance that Speaker Pelosi did for more than a year, which was a lot to keep up with um, on top of everything else. Before CNN, I wrote about Congress for the Weekly Standard. Uh, in that period, I did a lot of stories about trade policy because for some reason that was a fun obsession of mine. I also closely followed the relationship between you know, Hill Republicans and the White House. In the early days of the Trump administration, I was at a startup called IJR, which doesn't really exist today in the same form that it did back then. But while I was there, I covered the uh, effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act. I feel like it's been more than 10 years here on the Hill with everything that's happened over the past four years. But I try to bear in mind that I'm still very much new here and that there's always a lot to learn. Well, Haley, that that background certainly makes you uh, the perfect reporter to cover Washington and everything that's going on there right now. So uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about last week. Uh, the attack on the Capitol will be remembered uh, January 6th will be remembered as an infamous day in American history. You wrote about this recently in your newly launched newsletter at the Dispatch, Uphill. Uh, could you help us put that day in perspective uh, with events led up to it? And what do you make, honestly, of, of just what we witnessed? Well, what happened was just awful. I think a lot of people who don't follow the news very closely, you know, just sort of saw some goofy photos of guys wearing ridiculous costumes parading around the Capitol on social media at the time. But it's it's really important for people to know that this was serious. A police officer was killed. A woman who was trying to break into the House chamber was shot. Three other people who were there died of different medical emergencies. More than 50 Capitol police officers were hurt. One Capitol Police officer who was on duty that day died by suicide a couple of days later. Members of Congress and, and Mike Pence only barely escaped serious harm by being evacuated to safe rooms just in time. A journalist I know, a photographer for the New York Times, was attacked by several men who were angry at her for being a member of the press. She feared for her life as they attacked her, and the mob around them did nothing to stop it. It took hours for any kind of reinforcements to show up to help clear the, the building. It was just a devastating day. So I, I think it's important to start with that. The people who broke into the Capitol were not doing it for fun. Like they truly wanted to stop the counting of electoral college votes to stop Joe Biden from becoming president. And the point I tried to make in my newsletter was that Republican officials led by President Trump and enabled by members of Congress deceived millions of Americans into believing the results of the election could be overturned that day. It was a lie and they knew it. They knew that the outcome was not going to be altered in any way by their objections to different states' electors. And they knew Mike Pence didn't have the power to just unilaterally throw out millions of votes. And this hits sort of close to home for me because, you know, leading up to this day, a couple of members of my family had become convinced that some miracle was going to happen and Trump would ultimately be sworn in for a second term. You know, it's just it was just like a very wide delusion spread by Republican officials and conservative media. And for the vast majority of Republicans who did this, it was just the easiest option politically. Thomas Massey, he's a Republican congressman from Kentucky, told me that a few of his colleagues truly believed their own arguments about election fraud. But there were a whole host of his colleagues who were just frankly terrified of the base that Trump had misled. He said it was much easier to go along with it than to explain to them that Trump was misleading them. And, uh, and on Wednesday last week, we saw the consequences of that. So ultimately, last week's tragic events have led us to another historic moment, impeachment. And this week, the House voted yesterday to impeach President Trump a second time, with 10 House Republicans voting with Democrats to affirm the article of impeachment. Haley, can you explain for our listeners exactly what that means and what we expect to happen next? So uh, the President Trump was impeached by the House, which is really like making a charge against him. So it'll go to the Senate for a trial next. 
conviction requires two-thirds majority in the Senate. So 17 Republicans would have to vote against Trump for it to succeed. At this point, I really don't think the numbers are there for that, even though some Republican senators like Ben Sass have said, you know, they'll seriously consider it. It would just take a lot of momentum to get that many Republican senators to vote to convict. There were only 10 Republicans who went who supported the impeachment in the House. But here's the thing. The Senate is out until January 19th, the day before Trump leaves office. So uh, he's he's not going to be removed from office before then. They're not going to come back early. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, you know, the trial will take longer than Trump is in office anyway. So um, it, it's important to, to know that this is really going to be a deliberation about how to hold the president accountable for his role in this and whether to ban him from holding public office in the future. That accountability part is, is certainly a theme that many uh, are centering on who support impeachment. So, Haley, let's uh, let me ask you to kind of look in your your crystal ball as a reporter who has covered the the public square and in particular Capitol Hill for many years now, and and let's peek into the future in the aftermath of this terrifying attack. Um, should we expect any of this to make Congress a more unified body, if not in actual legislation uh, that's produced, but in in tone? In other words, is there anything positive that is going to come out of this? So I will note that this was the most bipartisan impeachment in American history. Um, it was also the most votes any impeachment has received in its favor. But other than that, no. <laughs> the institution is really just being stretched to its limits right now. Uh, members have deep distrust for each other. Democrats genuinely fear some of their Republican colleagues at this point. Uh, some of them refused to stay in the same safe room as everyone else because they didn't trust Republicans would stay quiet about where they all were hiding. Even for the ones who were in the safe room during the attack on the Capitol, members had to plead with several Republicans to put on masks to protect the older and more vulnerable lawmakers who were stuck in there with them. Of course, they did not put on the masks. Democrats are also claiming some Republicans may have been involved with members of the mob beforehand. We don't have all the facts yet, so I'd really urge caution about allegations like that. But it just shows there's a huge divide between the two parties right now. Members also fear that some Republicans will try to bring guns to the House floor, which is has been against the rules for a while. House Democratic leaders are requiring lawmakers to go through metal detectors before going into the chamber, which uh, usually they don't have to go through metal detectors. They, they walk around them. It was a huge point of tension this week uh, because a number of Republicans just outright refused to comply and walked around the police. Now Speaker Pelosi is going to impose huge fines on members who ignore the rules. So it's, re it's really just spiraling. Um, there's a lot of distrust. And frankly, some of that is warranted after last week. It's not a great sign for the rest of the 117th Congress. Hopefully things will improve from here, but I just don't see how that will happen at this point. Let's just zoom out a little bit. Um, we want to ask you about Christians and consuming the news. As a reporter, how do you determine what's newsworthy versus what isn't? Are there guidelines that we should use that might be helpful for an everyday Christian who is trying to discern being bombarded with just news outlets and social media, et cetera? Sure. Um, I think it's really hard for most people these days to know what news to trust and what not to trust. You know, there's just so many different messages on the internet. And if you don't have a background in journalism or a lot of media literacy experience, it can be really confusing. And we're all susceptible to misinformation, especially during weeks like this past week. At The Dispatch, a lot of our focus is on trying to present the news in a very clear and unconfusing way. So you should sign up for that. <laughs> I would also encourage people who primarily get their news from one side of the political spectrum to mix it up, you know, open up your news diet a little bit to read other perspectives. I would say that just because, you know, some outlets use a headline that conservatives might find annoying, or just because a reporter from a mainstream news organization does a tweet that you think is biased, or if just because you take issue with a reporting decision that was made at a certain point, that doesn't mean every news story from those places is something to ignore. Uh, for instance, Many people disagreed with BuzzFeed's decision to publish the Steele dossier about Russia and Trump. But if we were to write off BuzzFeed news entirely because of that, we would miss out on some really impressive reporting using satellite imagery about the Chinese government's genocide of ethnic Muslims in Xinjiang. So, I mean, news organizations, they're just made up of many different people who have different skill sets and approaches to the job. There are bad journalists. There are also many good journalists. 
So I think it's important to approach every news story individually and consider the sourcing, the facts behind them, and the track record of the journalist who wrote it. In most cases, other news outlets will be able to confirm reporting that is out there. So if you're questioning something you read, it's good to do some research and see what other outlets have had to say about it. But generally, I think Americans uh, would be better off and better informed if they didn't rely on social media to sort of curate their news for them. Like if you commit to reading articles in several different publications on a regular basis, instead of just sort of clicking on something that you scroll past on Facebook or Twitter, you're just going to know a lot more about a given issue. If you've read a 900-word article that presents the facts and went through editors in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, those stories also aren't usually going to send you into a flying rage, like a dumb tweet or Facebook post that you saw. And you'll probably know a lot more about the issue at the end of it. Haley, I mean, we we really appreciate what you guys are doing at The Dispatch because, you know, we're always trying to help point people toward basically healthy places to consume journalism. We always encourage people to, to read their news, not to watch their news, uh, to trust sources that, like you said, are from reputable outlets that go through uh, editing and, and fact-checking processes as opposed to, you know, some guy sitting in his truck talking into his cell phone camera. Yes. Uh, and so... <laughs> The work you guys are doing at the Dispatch is, is really awesome. We we use your uh, content all the time here on the podcast as we're kind of working through our weekly news rundown. And we want to plug for people. They should sign up for the Dispatch. And what a perfect time to launch a newsletter specifically covering Capitol Hill. So we're really excited about that. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We really are grateful and we appreciate the work that you're doing. So now it's time for the lunchroom where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Megan, you're up first this week. So tell us what's on your mind. Okay, so this week, um, actually, I saw this article because Lindsay posted it, which is funny because you guys mentioned how Lindsay loves movies, and she's probably filling her time with a new baby watching movies. Um, But she posted an article from Time about 39 anticipated movies of 2021. It's just some good news. Um, Now, movie theaters and movie releases have been a little hit or miss this past year, but there are almost 40 new movies that we can look forward to in this coming year, which is really exciting, whether they're released like in theater or um, online platforms. I know, Josh, um, Fast and Furious, you'll be excited to know that, of course. A couple that I caught my eye where there's a new movie, a Disney movie about Corella, like Corella DeVille from 101 Dalmatians, and several new Pixar movies. Um, also, if you haven't read the article, there is a new Space Jam movie coming out, which is it's kind of a throwback, but exciting. Um, a Ghostbusters, um, they're doing West Side Story, which is just a great Broadway musical um, on film. So lots of exciting things to look forward to. Yeah, I'm just the the Fast and Furious whole universe. Like at this point, like shouldn't it be like, Fast and Furious, Papa's ride. I, I mean, like it—they're it, <laughs> getting up there, aren't they? Like, oh, oh, Brent, oh, yeah. you're about to. T- so here's here's the thing. I think I won't do it today, but maybe I'll just prep for it. And one day during the podcast, I will give my why the Fast and the Furious is the most quixotic and fascinating movie franchise of all time. Uh, And I say that having literally just watched Too Fast, Too Furious last night uh, because I just love this ridiculous series. And I won't do it now. I'll save it for later. But Megan, thanks thanks for taking me there. Yeah, well, I'm thankful, Megan, that you found this and that you brought this to the lunchroom because honestly, I am, I am, I can't wait for the new 007 um, I can't wait for the new Mission Impossible, and I definitely can't wait for the new Top Gun. Like, I, I need to see these ASAP. Uh, these will restore my faith in humanity <laughs> that 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 this project is worth doing uh, because because these are going these I hope uh, will be great movies. Lots to look forward to. Yeah, that's a, that's a great list, especially for movie lovers, which I am one. Uh, Brent, what's on your mind this week? All right. So in keeping with, uh, what I let off my section with the, the bit of deja vu, our audience may experience a bit of deja vu with the the thing that I'm bringing to the lunchroom, but honestly, I think it's worth it. So, uh, as the year was ending, uh, I was, I mean, voraciously and quickly getting through Dane Ortland's book that we've talked about before, Gentle and Lowly. 
And I had already made my list of kind of the top books of 2020. And this was quickly rising in the charts. Uh, but I decided, and I think this is ethically permissible. Uh, you can tell me, Josh, being our ethics expert. Uh, I decided to save the the last few pages of the final chapter to read in 2021 to say it's now the top book of 2021 for me. Um, so that because I completed reading it in in this calendar year. But I, just what a fantastic book, what a needed word in a challenging season. Thank you, Dane Orland, uh, for writing that. We've had him on the show. Encourage y'all to go back and listen to our interview with him. But this is just a fantastic book. There's no other way to put it. It is a fantastic book. And Brent, I want to commend you for your, uh, to quote George W. Bush, your st strategy uh, in finding the book of the year and then going, I don't want to not have this book be my book of the year. I'm going to save it and put it in another calendar year. I mean, that's, you know, that's something. Uh, but look, everybody knows, I mean, we've talked about it ad nauseum. And so at the risk of offending you, I will just say, man, it's a great book. And if you haven't read it, you should. Uh, we have had Dane on the podcast, as Brent mentioned. I've also done an interview with him at DRLC.com. There's a book review on it at DRLC.com. It is, it is absolutely worth your time. So definitely check it out if you haven't. Awesome. All right, Josh, what do you bring into the lunchroom? I guess it's because I am the kind of person that I am. This is the way God made me. But since uh, since last Wednesday, when we watched the events at the Capitol, and honestly, the day before Wednesday was the Georgia Senate runoffs, and it was something that I was also paying a lot of attention to. And so I have just been uh, unbelievably focused on all of the stuff that is going on in our democracy. And so I've just been, you know, grasping for the ability as a Christian to try to make sense of these things. And so, uh, you know, we've already highlighted Dr. Moore's piece from Monday, uh, which I would highly commend uh, for people to read. And I'll just say that one more time at the end of the show. But also, Dr. Moore just did a podcast uh, on the Gospel Bound podcast, which is from the Gospel Coalition. And he sat down with Colin Hansen and just worked through uh, his book, The Courage to Stand, which, you know, in a time like this is actually really, really timely and appropriate, but also just kind of reflecting on on what we just saw and more importantly, like w where we are as Christians and what it looks like to move forward, what it looks like to, uh, to have, uh, honestly, the, the courage and the wisdom to know how to move forward in uh, the current political environment that we find ourselves in and as just as evangelicals, as we're looking forward. And so this podcast was really, really excellent. And so uh, at the risk of turning you onto another podcast, I would definitely recommend you go check out this interview between Dr. Moore and Colin Hansen. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review. But for Megan and for Brent and for myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week with more content. Mm -hmm.